Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Run. Rundown. Let's, Let's go. go. Uh, so we uh, we read this article. Um, we did. That's article. the whole point. That yeah. is. So um, yeah. So so oh. this week's article. Oh, what? I was going to introduce the article, but go ahead. Oh. Uh, you want to? You want to introduce it? I'll I'll give the summary. I'm I'm scheduled to give the summary today. So okay, we're doing it? a great job. Hold on. Uh, yeah. Okay, so the article is called "The End of Local Host: All the Clouds of Staging Env and All the Laptops and Really Clients" by Swix. Uh, this is on his Hashnode blog called DX.Tips. I don't know if he like moved his entire blog over to this. Hashnode is one of the many developer blogging platforms. Uh, but that's it. It generated, he wrote another blog post about this blog post because it generated a bunch of hacker news hate. I don't know if there's yeah. anything other than hacker news hate. I don't know if there's like hacker news happy. It's almost always yeah. hacker news hate. I know. Uh, yeah. I also like that he mentioned that that Reddit replied with uh, with equal um, equal hate except edgier. That was a nice, nice comment yes. on Reddit. Yeah, equal hate but edgier with, with awards. Um, Okay, that's it. That's the article. Joe is slated to give the TLDR, which is our new thing, I guess, on the podcast. Yep, we're doing it. All right, so yeah, so it's TLD, TLDR on this article. Um, it's basically the the end of localhost. It's this idea that he's looking toward the year twenty thirty, um, and he's kind of positing that cloud development is going to be so cheap and everywhere that localhost is no longer needed for local development. Um, Build, test, and deploy to staging all happens after every keystroke, uh, and you can start quickly and scale quickly. So his, um, the, what he said in the article is is basically zero to first customer within a weekend, and uh, um, MVP to unicorn within a few months, um, and then the he said perhaps most importantly, so kind of his biggest point about this is. Um, minimizing the diff between dev and prod environments. You're kind of always working in this environment that is like much closer to prod than your local environment. So that's the, that's the, the summary on this article. Summary. Um, so I'll like also give my take on the summary as well. Um, first off, like, yeah, eliminating the Delta between dev and prod dev environments are like a bugaboo. And have been for a really long time. There's a line in there that I really liked, which is dev environments. This is paraphrasing. Should be commodities, not specialties. Like he called them cows, not I forget. But I just kind of paraphrased yeah, to like, that. So like it's like uh, cattle, not pets. <clears throat> cattle, not pets. Yeah. So a commodity, not something that's special to you. And the, he made he made this list of like all the things, the dream state um, of the developer experience in 2030. And I just want to like highlight a couple of those things. Like dev machines are cheap and have multi-day battery life. I love that one. Your apps build in a second, regardless of scale with test and staging environments instantly live after every keystroke. You touched on that. Uh, and that your personal dev environment travels with you no matter which device you use. So like inherent in all of that, inherent in this argument or article is that your development environment wouldn't happen in an IDE in code that you pulled down off of GitHub or whatever your source control is. It would happen in a cloud IDE. Um, 
or for, if you're Joe cloud Vim, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a box somewhere. I don't actually know how that works. It would just be a box with stuff in it and you just Vim around in there. Uh, yep. but yeah, so it all happened remotely. So everything's going to require an internet connection and why that, why like my, my take on it was interesting. As you said, there was a joke in there that said, what if I want to develop on a plane? And he said, maybe you shouldn't, maybe you should talk to your friend, like talk to people around you and, you know, be a human. But my weirdness and what I think I'd like to start the discussion on, maybe if you're into it is like, this is really, really leaning to first world. And he calls this out first world countries with really strong internet. I personally live in the United States in, in like a, a suburban neighborhood and my internet still sucks and I wouldn't trust it. I guess in 2030, it hopefully would be different, but I wouldn't trust it right now to, to use completely ephemeral, ephemeral dev environments because like your, your work would be predicated on something you can't control, which is your, your ISP. Yeah, absolutely. And like you point out, like, uh, not everybody in the world has the same connection, the same ISP. And he mentions this in the, in the article too. He says, uh, he says something about um, how it's not evenly distributed. Basically, like there, you know, this is sort of happening right now in some ways at some of the bigger companies. Um, but uh, but he's looking towards a future where it's going to be much more widely available. Uh, but yeah, like that that would require um, a lot of developing countries, for example, to to have much more uh, coverage, uh, internet coverage. You know, uh, uh, higher bandwidth and and wider coverage and and I don't know that we're going to get there by 2030. Uh, yeah, that was that's an interesting take on it. There's also like an an A to Z thing happening here because right now a lot of dev is local, and then a lot of companies have a production environment, and then whatever it's called a staging environment, maybe, and maybe they also have a dev environment, and then you also have your local host, um, you know, and that the amount of it's not off by one errors, but like it works on my machine bugs, basically like it worked here. It worked in dev. It worked in staging. This would eliminate all of those, uh, which I think it would be is like, that's super attractive to me. So I will go, I will say, I want this to happen because of that problem that me working in dev right now is one of the most painful experiences at the particular company that I'm at. Yeah. And the hope would be that this eliminates that because you, if you don't have a reason, like imagine trying to like build, I guess I'm trying to think of like some metaphor to describe how terrible dev environments can be for developers, but it's, it's sort of like developing in a funhouse mirror, like house yeah. or whatever, because nothing is real and the data might be what it is or what it isn't in data-driven applications. If even the data is incorrect um, or at least different than production, then you can have vastly different rendered experiences. And then that could mean that something that was done in good faith, tested, QA'd, blah, 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 in your local host, then staging and dev can break in production. And then yeah. this would eliminate that, right? That difference, yeah. that delta would go down. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that I, I think it's interesting that that um, that he he sort of dr jumps on this issue of of eliminating the difference between dev and prod because. I, I have had some similar experiences. I think we all have like they're yeah. working in dev when it's a different environment than prod can be a really painful experience. I don't see uh, that Delta shrinking to zero. I just don't, I don't think that it's realistic for a lot of companies to use 
all prod data, for example. You know, I think there's there's a lot of sensitive data that's in a lot of production databases and and in dev you need to, for example, write data, which like you don't want to be writing data or you know, mutating data in a prod database. Um, so that's like, you know, that's just one example of something that I, I think is a little bit um, sort of necessary. It's like a necessary uh, divorce there between dev and prod. Um, but also, you know, little kind of smaller things like um, minified code versus unminified code and source maps and things like that. So in your JavaScript in production, you want it to be as slim as possible. So you minify everything. Um, you might have some source maps available on prod, but they're going to be, um, they're going to be, uh, probably different than your dev source maps. Um, and debugging production code is, uh, is, it can be tricky. Um, so I think there's going to be some, some differences. I think it's just going to be hard to get rid of all the differences, but maybe the point is more, you get rid of the important, you know, some of the more important differences between working in a dev and a prod environment. Yeah, I don't, I think if you take the promise at face value, which is you eliminate the difference by doing this, um, then it's really great. But then like you just did, you, you kind of pull it apart a little bit and you'd be eliminating your ability to work autonomously because you'd be tied to a VPN at a VM. It all boils down to like a VM somewhere running in some cloud over the internet. Yeah. Um, and that probably you'd have less agency to debug than you do your local machine. Right. Um, Absolutely. So it, yeah. And it just like takes agency away from you. Yes. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I, I, I kind of honed in on the thing you mentioned too, that his kind of half joke about like, well, what if I need to code on a plane? And his answer to that was like, just maybe stop flying so much. Um, which like <laughs> I get, and, and it was like, or, or yeah, maybe get a book. Right. Yeah. It's flipping. Yeah. Right. Um, but I like the sentiment, like, you know, you don't need to, if you're, if you're coding on a plane because you don't feel like you can spend one second of your day, not coding, that's one issue. But, uh, but I think it points to a different issue, which is some, sometimes you just want to work in a place where you aren't connected to the internet. Sometimes you want to write code at a moment where you don't have access to, you know, you're in a cafe that doesn't have Wi-Fi or, or whatever, like you're, you're somewhere and, um, and you just want to work locally. Um, I don't think that's like a, I don't think that's, uh, too much to ask, I guess, but, um, it got me thinking about like, would this be, you know, the, the default is not using localhost, but of course you would still have the option to use localhost. It's just that the experiences would be so different. I think if, if the future comes at the, at where, where he, how he's describing, um, the differences between localhost and this cloud environment would be so different. Um, especially when you start thinking about, uh, integrating with other services, you know, if you're working in a microservice architecture, it's going to be way easier to do that in a dev environment where everything is spun up. You have instances of all of your services that you need to talk to. Localhost, that's going to be super hard. Um, but maybe then it just comes down to you do certain tasks uh, locally when you're not connected to the internet and you save certain other tasks for when you are connected. I think that makes sense. Um... Yeah, I think the argument about like, oh, just don't develop on the plane is not the whole case of why you don't want to be tied to the internet all the time. 
Um, but I, I mean, my, my main problem with it would just be that you have no, or you'd have less control, like thinking about enterprise permission systems in the cloud or something like that. You know, if you have some box that's yours somewhere, or some IDE instance that's yours somewhere, realistically, how much control do you have over that? Um, is it like a hotel IDE environment or is it like bespoke mine and I get to do a bunch of stuff to it? Uh, and and make it my own and debug it and install whatever extension that I want. Um, yep. Install you know, Vim sketchy, if you want. Sketchy or otherwise, I'd never do that. Um, <laughs> but like that to me just feels, I don't know, there's something, maybe that's just me being provincial, but I, I feel like I've you develop on your laptop. Yeah. That's right. I, yeah. I, I there's something about so, that. Totally. I don't think it's you being provincial. I had the same thought, which I had, I had the same thought and then I immediately had another thought. My my first thought was uh, it's really hard for me to picture developing completely in the cloud. Like you know, I know I know GitHub is um, working on this like uh, browser environment IDE where you can just like work right on GitHub and in the browser, and um, people are really attracted to that. I think uh, I I have a really hard time imagining a world where I don't clone a repo to my local computer and just have it. It's like maybe it's this weird sort of like. Uh, feeling like I need to have something like tangible, mm-hmm. you know, and, and code is so intangible. Anyway, it's just, it feels like it's anchored when it's on my computer, it's anchored there. And I know the, uh, the, the, what the work that I'm doing isn't going to be blown away. If the dev V, if the, you know, the VM that's a, that's one of many other VMs because the company owns it, if that gets reset or something. Now there's of course, like other data loss that can happen if you're working locally, but Anyway, that was my first thought is it feels like it would be really hard uh, to break that sort of mental feeling of like feeling like you own the code, whatever. It sounds weird. I don't know. I feel weird for saying that. But There's um, nothing weird about that. There is a difference. I've worked in like Stack Blitz uh, or even just like VS Code, SSH whatever that's called. I forget what it's called. Live sessions. Yeah. Remote uh, containers. Remote containers. Yeah. To work in our dev environment. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. yeah, um, So our dev environment, you know, you can. We'll we'll, we'll come back to it. Sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no. It's it's just like you're working in, I've worked in those sessions and it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. It's not as fat, like going through file index, like indexed file systems. uh, It's slower to search for things. And mm-hmm. that could be just like, so in 2030, hopefully your VMs are powerful enough right? Uh, that it, it doesn't matter. But I do think like if you've got some like roasting app, you know, M1 laptop, you can do a lot of things pretty fast and it'd be tough to imagine you have that ten- type of computational power like per dev um, yeah. sitting in the cloud somewhere. Yeah. The, and, and, and all of it, like kind of his whole article is predicated on that idea that we would be in such, you know, 10 years is far enough off that like, and actually this is one of the things I liked about this article, 10 years is far enough off that you're like, well, a lot could happen in 10 years. Yes. You know? Yes. Especially um, in dev, like 10 years yeah. in the dev environment is like, or in, in development in general, is just like a monumental amount of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's not 50 years. It's not like a whole generation where you're just like, I don't know, like think right. back to 50 years before now it's a, it was like, can't even imagine 50 years in the future, I, I don't think. But 10 years is this kind of hits a sweet spot. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. 
one other thing that I did want to uh, touch on that I, I briefly talked to you about the other day was the environmental impact of commoditized dev environments. So if ephemeral dev environments, everything happens in the cloud. All of your, just think about working in like a Next.js app or something. Every time you save a file, you would be rerunning a build process and sending all of that source back to be like rendered as opposed to localhost, that's all happening on my machine. So there yep. is a sunk cost of the, the node process. And that's, right. I'm not saying, you know, transferring that to the cloud makes it any better or worse. But the additional cost of having this be remote would be sending the results of that node process to be viewed uh, over the cloud. Like, so that's a lot of, um, I guess you'd have to, right? So I, I'm not sure how yeah. that would work. You'd have to. Maybe I'm crazy. You, I feel like that's a problem, right? Like you're going to have to send a whole bunch of JavaScript and CSS and all sorts of junk every time you save a file to have a refreshed browser. Right. It has to happen. Yes. Yes. Uh, that I, I is think a that, huge yeah. amount of wire weight. It is. Constantly think and, and extrapolate that out in 2030. We're gonna we're gonna we're adding 50,000 plus devs a year to the global pool of developers, whatever the number is. You're talking millions of people, all just hammering the internet constantly. I'm not saying it's Bitcoin, like using right. the energy of Argentina or whatever the right. numbers. Don't don't at me. I don't actually have a Twitter, so whatever you can yell at anybody named Devin Cooper. Um, <laughs> but it's definitely gonna be something. And it's going to be something. Yeah. I, I, when you, when you mentioned this the other day, I was thinking about how, yeah, there's going to be, there are two places where I see uh, more energy consumption. One is what you're talking about. It's the, like all the stuff that we're sending back and forth over the wire. Um, the other place is uh, just, just running, a, you know, running an instance of a computer that is uh, on a cloud somewhere that like wouldn't pre previously be running if you're running things locally. Um, but when I was when I was thinking about that, I actually wonder how uh, how much that energy cost will go go will go down over the next ten years. Um, the the energy costs of running small instances of thing instances of things in the cloud because I feel like we're going the direction of getting more and more granular with with what we're running in the cloud. If you have like one machine, you can run so many things on that machine with. Uh, you know, uh, VM partitions and Docker containers. And um, people have been talking lately about uh, Wasm replacing Docker in some cases, and that would be a lighter footprint. So it just feels like we are moving in the direction of being able to do more with uh, with less resources. And, and I just wonder what that's going to look like for the next 30 years. But that's a separate thing from sending all this stuff over the wire, because yeah, that's... that's uh, that's huge. Of course, we could also have uh, changes in internet protocols in the next 10 years. I think that's probably a little more unlikely, um, but there may be, you know, different compression algorithms, different, different, um, yeah, just ways to get data over the wire. I don't have too much else to talk about. Oh, the thing I was going to, I was going to mention about um, the, uh, talking about developing completely in the cloud seems like a weird concept right now. And, and you feel like you kind of don't have ownership if you're not, um, if you don't have the thing on your computer, I feel like 
also, I might look back in 10 years and be like, I was such a, an old man for saying that. Or, you know, it sounds so weird. It's like when they used to worry that as uh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the like internet is expensive. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's like when you when you hear old clips of people talk about the internet and they just call it internet. And they're like, have you heard about this new thing, internet? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's all I really have. There was, um, I had one other thought about like, a little bit tangential, but but thinking about will this change how much the average developer needs to know about how deploys work? Like, you know, because in the article he talks about not even just every time you save redeploying, but every keystroke. And, you know, in his, in his sort of future looking vision, he's like every keystroke your app builds, t- uh, runs tests, deploy- goes through the whole CI thing in the amount of time it takes you to make the next keystroke, which you know, it, whatever, like uh, unrealistic as that may seem from this point of view. The question is then if that gets deployed on every keystroke, uh, will the average developer need to know more about that process, about the deploy process? Because, because you know, right now, the team I'm on, we help a lot of developers go through deploys. And when things go wrong, we help them debug deploys. And they're only making deploys every time they push code. Um, and so if that goes, if that feedback loop goes down to every time you're making a keystroke or even every time you save and like something goes wrong, it seems like your average developer is going to have to have a better understanding of how that whole thing works down to the, down to the, the layer and the stack of the code goes out and is now available on the internet. Well, wouldn't the, oh, that's, I didn't even think about that. Wouldn't the, why would it deploy every, say, oh. Oh, I guess it is deploying. If you, well, Depl- I guess is, deploy is like a, so, it, this it, is like it, a loose term. Yeah, it's like yeah. an interesting term. So, is it maybe this is getting too in the weeds? But if you're in some IDE remote and then you're changing code and it's running a process, is that actually like storing that any differently than if it was local and I have to push it to version control? Like, it's not deploying that as I go. Um, no, I think you know today's cloud IDEs are are not. But I think in his vision, it sounds Uh-oh. like that's that's more like what he's talking about. Because like you know he talks about things like um, uh, minimizing the difference between dev and prod, which would also mean min- like one of the pain points that would solve is trying to hit HTTPS from localhost, for example. So I'm picturing these would be de- being deployed to an HTTPS site, right? And like ideally the same domain in the same domain as yours sure. so that you don't have these cross origin um, problems. You know, that's, that would be a those, big win. Yeah. Those, those to me were, were two of the big things that I'm like, that would be huge. If, if like, we didn't just didn't have to think about that. I think about how much time I spend uh, helping people solve these problems at work about trying to, you know, hit a, uh, hit a, a, a an endpoint on like a reverse or, proxy or something like when you're yeah, just dealing yeah. with um, cores HTTPS from localhost, yeah. it's just a it's like that's a problem that's ha- that's been happening forever and forever is always annoying. And there's like if every any tutorial you ever watch that stands up some sort of application, it's always like, all right, let's go make our you know like dev versus prod endpoint change, blah blah blah, and then you always have like some localhost version, and then. I don't know. It's just been a pain in the ass forever. So I think that would be a a net win. One thing that, so I think there's like, how do we get there? 
um, is an interesting argument that's not really covered. This is sort of, and I love this article because it goes, here's where we are. Here's where in 10 years, I think we could be. And it's this like awesome, perfect future. What I would like to see as incremental steps is as build process, like build processes. I don't know if, I know that there's a spectrum of development and some people are like way on the bleeding edge if you work at uh, one of these places that already has ephemeral deploys. And then there's like way, way back beyond that point where people are still FTPing, you know, jQuery files up and that's fine too. We're in the middle. We work in like Webpack apps, which which feels somehow like an age of the internet that is past for some people. Mm-hmm. But build times are uh, still slow and I still yeah. have to run like yarn all the time to install dependencies and stuff. I think there's like a nice next step that I'd love to see, which is we we like dockerize all of our development environments or whatever so that you don't I don't have to worry about managing my dependencies in my local version or something like that. I just have development environment like I just click a button or run one thing and the development environment is exactly like everybody else's. Um and it runs really super fast with a with a build tool like Vite or something like that. That's just like blazingly fast running my tests. Vite test maybe if that ends up working. I don't know how that's doing yet, but uh, it's like it's running my test super fast. It's building my stuff super fast, and I don't have to worry about anything else. That would be a really nice next step, regardless of the environment that the the substrate that the code is eventually served in, like whether it's dev localhost you know, staging, whatever, that would just be a big win. And and we're not even there yet. So it's tough to, it's tough to see the 20, 20, 30 vision when you're like, yeah. oh shit, I'm still like 15 second webpack builds uh, every time right. I save anything, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and the whole, I mean, the, the V thing and, uh, and snowpack and all that, that's like a totally different uh, conversation. So we won't even get started on that. But um, I like the, you know, the idea of, uh, of Docker, it's funny because D- JavaScript Docker environments haven't taken off as far as as far as I can tell. I I kind of like did a bunch of uh, playing around with it and trying to get it working really well, and I never really got it um, working great. I got it working, and I got it working pretty quickly, but uh, yeah. but there's always this latency. Um, but anyway, I won't go, maybe we'll talk about that in a in a future um, episode. But what I was going to say is Docker has made some speed improvements and it sounds like pretty significant speed improvements. So I want to go back and try that again. Cause to me, that is a really uh, promising future is, yes. is like code run, like your dev environment being in Docker and like Python does that. I think pretty, I think it's pretty standard for Python apps to do that. Yeah. Um, I've this would be table stakes, right. For like remote development yeah. environments, it'd have to be Dockerized. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that, I think the Docker improvement that uh, you're talking about, it was like a 90x speed, some crazy speed yeah. improvement if you're on silicone. Um, right. And right. that was the that was the key difference. But it was a significant speed improvement that could move to like a Dockerized JavaScript environment being yeah. fast enough. Yeah. I will say actually the the VS Code um, Docker experience is is good. It's really good, and also like remoting into a to a SSH through VS Code and and developing on there. That's a good experience too. Good. I think my uh, my only downside with it was really really large projects. It's slow to search within. Yeah, um, but I, I still like grappling stuff in the remote console. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but just doing like VS code based searching. If you're just a, a pleb like me and you just, just, you know, control shift F or whatever and look yep. for stuff, it's really yep. slow if you have tons and tons and tons of files, like half a million line projects type of stuff. Yeah. Um, or a million lines. I don't actually know how large these projects are, but they're big. So yeah. that stuff is a little bit slow. But yep. it's pretty cool that it exists. Like that it's just make, VS Code makes it so easy to click a button. You set up your remote environment and just it's just like SSH is in and you're good to go. Um, yep. Kudos to Microsoft for that one. <laughs> um, cool. Should we uh, should we wrap it up? Should we move on to our our uh, our second to last um, segment? Or, or oh. I should say our, our next segment. What are you learning now? That's what are you learning the, now? <laughs> what are you learning now? I don't know what we want to call it. Uh, yeah. The the Sailing Away on the Good News Cruise is a really solid that's, title. That's we a, need something as good as that. Yeah. Uh, um, we'll come so what are you learning that. now, Evan? Ooh, okay. Uh, abort controllers. That was oh, something yeah. I was looking into. Um, mm-hmm. There was, uh, I forget, I was like reading an article about abort controllers allow you to like, abort a fetch. Uh, in the middle of it, which is pretty cool. Uh, you can like disregard or not care about, say, like the return of a fetch. But this actually will stop the request mid-flight, which is pretty cool. But there's um, some other potential use cases for a board controller that I think are out there that I want to explore. Just seems like something cool uh, to look into. And huh. I, I don't know much more about it, uh, yeah, but I'm I think there's more to it. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about some of the other use cases because that's it, it is yet. it's an interesting, <laughs> interesting idea. Yeah, I don't know yet. So uh, look up aboard controllers. That's something I, yeah. I was exposed to like this morning, um, or a couple of days ago. I don't know. And I was looking at the MDN docs for it this morning, and I was like, hmm, are there anything any other things we can do with this? And I'll report back in the next episode. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the startup that I used to work at, um, there was I worked with a guy who was basically tasked with uh, rolling our own abort controller. So he, he, he made a mechanism to cancel a promise. Uh, and I think it's because we were working in Node and Node only recently got uh, the abort control. I mean, it's had like, you know, there have been polyfills for a long time, but this was, this was a, a long time ago. And we needed a way to cancel promises. Um, and... He did it. And I didn't have a clue what I was, I was like trying to, I was, especially at that point, it was like the beginning of my coding career sure. and I could not make heads or tails of what I was looking <laughs> at with this code. I will say I am skeptical that those do the same thing because Bluebird <laughs> has had a promise cancel for a long time. Um, but I don't know that canceling a promise is the same thing as canceling a fetch request. Right. No, those are, those are different things. Cause yeah, you okay, can, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you can cancel a promise and and basically just ignore the result of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's been like you can roll your own promise implementation that has a cancel method, and that's what Bluebird did. Yeah, uh, and it was around for a long time. But like actually canceling the HTTP request in fetch is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that was actually the the like canceling is an interesting thing too because the other thing we did at the at the startup was we we uh, had like a little wrapper around a promise that would expose the resolve and reject externally. So you could resolve or reject the promise from outside. Um, and it was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, somebody that we know who is opinionated, uh, at, at our company was like, that's the worst idea ever. <laughs> <laughs> someone who's still at the company or yeah, someone yeah, yeah. who left a long time. Okay. Okay. No, no. Uh, I think I have a sense of who that might be. <laughs> um, I also think, 
why would you do that? Um, what, what, do you remember the use case? I don't want to get too deep in the weeds because we're in the world yeah. you learn right now. But yeah, man, now right, I'm engaged right. because promises are always super exciting to me. I'm trying to remember the use case. Um, trying to remember the use case for this, and I can't uh, off the top of my head. There was like a very specific use case that we used it for, and it's not coming to me right now. That's um, fine. Yeah, it was Report like back. kind of a what's that? Report back. Report back. Yeah, it was kind of a different um, like mental model. The whole way that we were working was was really different because it was for a long lived application. It wasn't uh, web based. Except that we were um, the 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 interface was a, a browser. It was a Chromium instance, so it was like it was Electron, but it was a long running application. So it wasn't a, a web page that you would just sort of like you know refresh if it didn't load or something. You know, you couldn't basically. There was no way to refresh. You hmm. you had to um, be very careful about what was happening with all of the asynchronous code because if you if you either were like leaking memory or if you were uh, do, if you weren't handling uh, callbacks or promises correctly, it would have these like implications that that would mess things up, and and you kind of basically have to restart the whole uh, the whole. It was on a robot, so it was like this. You'd have to restart the robot. It was man, all the things you're saying sound really cool. I won't lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a robot. <laughs> I was building a robot. I'm trying to downplay um, it. I'm trying to like. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. He's a humble guy. Humble guy. Uh, so, Joe, what are you learning? What am I learning? Um, so, to, this week, I am actually this this next couple of weeks. I've been working on this um, uh, Google Cloud uh, course. There's like a Google Cloud Professional Cloud Architect course, um, and so I've been learning a lot about uh, a whole lot of internet fundamentals that uh that i've never you know got a lot of direct exposure to which has been super cool i've been really enjoying the course and enjoying what i'm learning it's things like subnet masks and um and you know just uh like ip ranges ip ranges ipv uh v4 versus v6 it's like a lot of stuff that i don't need to know day to day necessarily in my job right now but i always like um kind of expanding my my sphere of of knowledge, even if it's just sort of touching on what is this thing? Like, you know, I've heard about I, IPv4 versus v6 for years and never really thought to like look at what the difference between those two things are. Yeah, that's just the button I click in Netlify. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like, do you want IPv6? It's like, hell yeah, six is more than yeah. four. And then I yeah. click it. I <laughs> so no idea what's happening. I know. It's actually, it's pretty interesting. So IP, IPv4 was created at, it's a uh, protocol, I guess, or like a, yeah, um, I don't know if protocol is the right word, but it's, um, it was created at a time when people didn't expect as many people to be using the internet as they as are now so um so basically you have public ip addresses and if it's an ipv4 address uh at this point there are too many people using the internet for everybody to have their own ipv4 address um and the way they solve that i'll I'll talk about the way they solve that in a minute but but ipv6 was created so that uh because they're ipv6 allows for a much higher range of you know it's whatever in the it's like quintillions or whatever is this literally you know, like the, it's four versus six digits in the last set of the ip number or is is that I do, like I do, 
So that I don't know. I don't actually know okay. like what the what the I don't know what IPv6 looks like. You might be right yeah, that that it's was like, my like Neanderthal brain is like is it four numbers versus six numbers to create more address options? But so I don't think so because uh, I don't think so. I I will have to look at what IPv6 is, but IPv4 is the one with you know it's got four octets and so each one has two hundred fifty six uh, places. So yeah, it might be that uh, yeah. I, I don't want to I'm talk not, about Sorry, it. I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize. Go ahead. Yeah. But so it's kind of interesting how they solved the IPv4 problem. Um, it's another thing that I'm learning about, which is uh, which is uh, NAT. So I don't I don't remember what NAT stands for off the top of my head, but um, network. It's like uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe you can look it up while I'm talking. NAT NAT. So what it is is um, it's a it's like an internal. Um, Network it's address a, translation. Network address translation. That's it. So it's on your router, and the uh, the uh, it, it exposes a, a single public IP address for like your whole home network. So you can have four or five devices connect to your to, connected to your router, and they each get their own private IP address. And so the NAT translates that private IP address to the single public IP address that your router has. Um, so because there aren't enough IPv4 addresses to give every single device its own um, public address, or at least as a way to to manage the the number of public IP addresses. So it's kind of funny to hear about how the internet is not a monolithic structure built now. It's like pieces of things built on top of pieces of things over yeah. years. And it's think about how much global commerce goes through what is in a way a duct taped together set of solutions um, yep. governed by like very well-meaning unpaid uh, like spec organizations that make sure everything continues to work. That's, it seems that's uh, just wild to think about. It is. It's a little scary to think about. It is a little scary to think about, um, but think about like all these uh, volunteer only spec organizations that handle how like how the internet continues to work and then this is like an existential topic for another one but the metaverse is going to require new protocols for everybody to talk to each other but it's all based on corporate uh needs so like how does that change it because the internet was built originally on like decentralized everybody's like loves each other and mm -hmm. wants freedom of information <laughs> and then the metaverse is like suck needs his cash back yes. and uh like how does how does that change the the creation of uh, like a, essentially like a net new internet yeah environment i don't know yeah that's uh, just go read ready player one yeah, I wanted to. That's one of those movies I want to watch, and then I never do because I, I like watch the trailer, and I'm like, oh, I'll watch the trailer, and I'm like, oh, I've seen this trailer 15 times. Yeah, and it never really sucks me in enough because I don't love movies that are all set pieces like strung together. Yeah, I like same. character pieces. Uh, I like weird, quiet movies where not much happens. Yeah, um, the, book shows good, where the book I'll read the book. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, also, it, oh, so, so yeah, so that's what I'm learning. Also, by the way, I probably said a bunch of dumb stuff. So don't take me, <laughs> don't take everywhere. I'm learning right now. I'm, le I'm still learning it. <laughs> Joe, the cloud architect says that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, it's always fun to like go way outside your comfort zone. Um, yeah. And also 
those things I find end up being useful somehow, some way down the line. Yes. Like yeah. learning about X random infrastructure technology is never not useful for being a developer. It may not be like directly applicable to making a React app or something like whatever, but right. your overall understanding of the ecosystem that you work in can't hurt anybody. And right. Absolutely. the people that I respect the most that I work with on a regular basis, there's someone who works at our company that's like, uh, I don't know. I have no idea if we're supposed to say people's names or not, but this person is, um, they just have like this unbelievably vast knowledge of everything from like browser rendering through the like, internet. Somehow they know about puppet server. I don't know. They just know all this stuff and they seem to be involved all the time in everything. I'm like, how do you know all of these things? And it's because at every opportunity, I'm sure they learned instead of not learned. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's what it is. And like, you always see somebody at the at the end, or not at the end, but at, you know, at a, at a point in their journey, right. where you don't see how long it took them to get there. You don't see all these little pieces of knowledge that they picked up along the way. You just see like, oh, that person just knows everything. And I think your brain sort of goes, they've always known everything. So like, yes, it, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it it's like, like demoralizing for a couple seconds when you're like, holy is. shit, how do they know you're, all this stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes and you, then you yeah, demoralizing is a good good. But, but then like the the uh, metamorphosis that I've gone through over the years is at first I was like, well, how do I get to that? Like, how do I learn? How do I be that person that knows all these things? But the reality that I even wrote like a blog post about this shitty plug for cooperbuilt.tech. But um, <laughs> <laughs> there's like this, this uh, idea of like they didn't get that way because they were thinking that way. They didn't become super vast, knowledgeable, like have have really vast bodies of knowledge because they're like, how do I become the person that knows everything? They're just curious people who have a, yes. a general habit of consistently learning. And over time, like everything in life, it takes fucking forever to do anything good. You just learn a bunch of stuff. And then you look back and you're like, oh, wow. You know, my chasm of what I don't know has uh, narrowed a little bit. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, all right. I think it's time for the good news cruise. Time to sail away. Sail away on the good news cruise. <laughs> uh, I uh, have one today. Oh, yeah. Go uh, first. Go. So I'll go first because I have one. Um, I made a little list. So just so I don't go through the embarrassment of what happened last <laughs> week where I was caught off guard. And <laughs> you I said, said a tea uh, stop opening up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can go get dinner easier. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> um, so I have one, which is uh, I read that, uh, and there, this is connected to to something else. I read that that you know, there's this idea that like having a drink every night is good for your health or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, an alcoholic drink. I read that that is also true. They they did some research. They found that's also true for non-alcoholic beer. That that is also good for at least male health. I think I can't remember if it was male or, and female or if it's just male, oh, wow. but like it's good for male health um, to have uh, a non-alcoholic beer too. Uh, they said it's like, it's good for your, for your gut uh, microbes. It diversifies your gut, gut microbes. Um, the reason why that was good news to me is because lately I have been drinking, I don't know if you've had this before, uh, Athletic Brewing Company. Nope. Non alcoholic beer. I, I, don't, I don't like beer. So, what, like, drinking really. non alcoholic beer is oh, a terrible yeah. prospect for me, but uh, go for it. Yeah, it's great. It's delicious. Um, well, I'd like to welcome our new sponsor, Athletic Brewing Company. Um, Athletic 
No, but uh, <laughs> they give us no, one six pack a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's it's really good, and I was really excited to read that because I was like, oh, this is I've been drinking this non-alcoholic beer, and it's good for my gut microbes. Nice. Oh man, that's a double win when you're doing something and someone validates that it's a good idea, and you're like, oh yep. shit. Uh, cool. I yeah, I was strugg- I was struggling to find good news, uh, which happens to everybody. So. Mm-hmm. This is like a bit of good slash bad news, but I think it's good long term, which is the FDA updated their guidelines on PFAS, which is PFAS, which uh, are like forever chemicals and Teflon and other nonstick materials. Um, They've had guidelines on how much PFAS are allowed to be in our water sources. And it was an amount like 17 and hundred parts per million or some parts per billion or some like tiny, tiny amount. They updated it to zero. Uh, so now it's 100% zero. You cannot have any, there is no safe level, which is wow. first off terrifying because they're everywhere. Yeah. Second off, it's the, it's the start of a change. So I would say yeah. that now once, once the FDA bans something and says it's completely, you can't have it in your water system, People have to start doing something about it, like your local municipal water department has to start figuring out how to get to compliance, which is zero, which which is unprecedented. Like there's nothing else that's zero that you can even have parts per million of cocaine in your water and it's okay. Um, you know, or other like seemingly arsenic, seemingly harmful chemicals, heavy metals, but zero PFAS. So that's pretty wow. cool because they've been unequivocally linked to some really terrible deleterious health effects. So hmm. Let's get them out of our water. And yeah, what about my my nonstick pans? Don't use them. Like, throw them out. Get seriously. Yeah. Throw them out. Yeah, <laughs> mm. throw them out. I know they're really helpful, but just use more butter. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really good news. Uh, yeah, I feel like a little weird to sail away on that good news. It's like we're all fucked. <laughs> uh, Joe, give me. I, I gotta have another one. Um, what, uh, any new tea, st- any new tea stops open up in your area? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, a, a factory recently showed it can, um, produce <laughs> at modest scale, solid state batteries for elect, uh, electric vehicles, which oh. is a, which is a leap in technology and would mean you, if, if they get that thing humming at full scale, you can charge an electric vehicle in like 10 minutes, Ooh, uh, which, would, which would definitely push us further into EV territory, which is probably yep. a net benefit. Yep. Yep. All right. That is good news. That's good news. I feel okay, like I, feel I, better. Feel I feel like I can sail away now. You could drive away in that good news, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe a battery powered boat, probably. <laughs> All right. Well, we sailed away. We got to sail away now. How do we end yep. this thing? Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> What we did, we need to have the like slowly fading of like come sail away, come yeah, sail exactly. away, come sail away. Uh, that's that's what we're gonna add in over exactly and post production. Yeah, all right. Well, it was so good talking to you. Joe. You too. We can just go three, two, Ten. one.